Welcome. This is the anatomy cupboard. This is the first of 2023, but the 11th if you're following the series. And this one's called Who Killed Viersung? I worked for a senior surgeon in England for a number of years. Uh, who wrote a beautiful little book on rare small bowel cancers. Now, cancer of the colon and rectum, I'm sorry if anyone's having dinner, cancer of the large bowel is common, and it's the basis of all the screening studies that we do, or a lot of them at any rate. Equally, at the top of the gastrointestinal tract lies the stomach, and cancers of the stomach are not uncommon too. But all of that small intestine running between the large colon and the stomach, well, cancers there, cancer of the small bowel, they, they are actually very rare. And they represent less than 5% of all the cancers of the digestive tract. So my boss, who became a good friend, writes this book about them. And after 35 years, he retires with his wife, buying a nice little property in McGower in Wales, where he expects a happy retirement, uh, no doubt working in his garden and relaxing with the newspapers. I mean, who knows, writing some other obscure book. A life filled with bowls and croquet and cucumber sandwiches with the tops lopped off and Devonshire teas. Instead, he's there five months, and he's rushed back to his old hospital in London, where he's diagnosed with an advanced, and as it turns out, inoperable, cancer of the small bowel. And he dies two months later. Now, even with the irony, this vignette is kind of ridiculously unfair. But there are a host of surgeons and anatomists who die of what they studied. One of the great pancreatic surgeons whom I worked for in Israel, an absolutely charming man who would take out maybe one cancerous pancreas a week when I was there and who fostered a lot of research I was doing. Well, he gets an advanced inoperable pancreatic cancer and at 62 dies four months later. The surgeon Everts A. Graham, the first person to remove a lung for lung cancer in 1933, well, he dies of what else but lung cancer in 1957, whilst his patient goes on happily for 30 years after the pneumonectomy, the operation Graham did in removing the lung. Old René Lenette, the inventor of the stethoscope, which he designed to pick up the ravages of tuberculosis, of course, dies of TB himself. As the exposition and crime writer of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had put it into the ruminations of a surgeon in one of his stories, quote, men die of the disease which they've studied most, remarked the surgeon snipping off the end of a cigar with all his professional neatness and finish. It's as if the morbid condition was an evil creature, which when it found itself closely hunted, flew at the throat of its pursuer, unquote. The bombastic surgeon anatomist John Hunter predicted that he was going to keel over with a massive heart attack, which is precisely what happened. 
in a St George's Hospital board meeting when he was arguing vociferously for his students to be placed in a pool for consideration as potential future consultants. Hunter died mid-argument. You can imagine him clutching this chest. After all, he'd written about it, predicting just that in his preceding notes, his life referring to himself in the third person, quote, in the hands of any rascal who chooses to annoy and tease me, unquote. He knew he had severe angina and that it would set off uh, would be set off by a dose of overexcitement. It's as if he was taunting his enemies. But who on earth would have dared to tease or parley with this guy? He doesn't come across as someone with whom you could practice badinage, by the way. And I can't think of the number of anatomists who died from overwhelming septicemia, that's blood poisoning to you and me, from some accident around doing an autopsy. It was in the age when there was no understanding of microbes, viruses or bacteria or of the concept of contamination, let alone antibiotics or antisepsis. But each of these was with some irony. One example was Joachim Giraldes in Paris in 1854, who was Professor of Anatomy at Beju Hospital. Anyway, he's apparently doing one of his post-mortems, cutting a calcified windpipe, and somehow he gets hit in the eye with something hard. He's in recovery from this disaster for a year, where in the meantime the vision in his good eye deteriorates, and he gives up work sitting at home and pining away, I guess. This latter story debunks the view that somehow he cuts himself in the autopsy room and then dies of septicemia. That last death rite is far less romantic, of course, but certainly it happened. William and John Hunter's protege, a fellow called William Hewson, who'd just opened a dissecting hall in the Craven Street building that was rented out to Benjamin Franklin. You can still see that uh, building. Hewson, too, died from septicemia after inadvertently cutting himself whilst dissecting a cadaver there. No worse story than that, perhaps, of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was rumoured to have done the same thing, but that's not true. Semmelweis was the man who realised that all the pregnant women in his hospital in Vienna were developing puerperal fever and dying because they were being examined by medical students who'd come straight from the anatomy dissecting rooms to examine expectant mothers. Well, all Semmelweis did was to put a bowl of chlorinated lime water between those examining rooms and insist that to get in to examine the pregnant ladies, you had to wash your hands first. What a radical idea. And this simple act cut the death rate of the pregnant mothers by an astonishing 90%. Of course, no one believed his results, and it sent him mad. He ended up in a local mental asylum where he lasted only two weeks, dying of septicemia himself, which was more than likely the result of a, a bunch of guards beating him up. Who knows, the old idea that he developed his fatal case either after tending his roses or suffering a pricked finger or from doing an autopsy wouldn't fit because he was locked away in the Landesrierenstadt in Döbling, a special little brutal ward for the insane where all those who'd suffered a breakdown were shackled and tortured, a little place that locally became known as the Tower of Fools. But Ignaz Semmelweis's friend, Vienna's forensic pathologist, who did a lot of the suspicious death autopsies, a fellow called Jacob Kalechka, he did die in 1847 of septicemia incurred 
when one of his students accidentally injured Kolechka's finger with a scalpel blade during a routine autopsy. My point is, anatomy posed many other potential dangers for anatomists, and these dangers could come sometimes from the most unlikely of places. The English surgeon Sir James Paget also incurred septicemia after an autopsy wound, but he survived it, and writing in his memoirs of his harrowing course, also felt that he'd survived the ten doctors who were looking after him. Shakespeare knew of this too, I think, when he wrote in his play Cymbeline, the fictional story of an ancient British king. In Act 5, Scene 5, Cymbeline laments, quote, by medicine life may be prolonged, yet death will seize the doctor too. surgeon. I want to get on to the pancreas itself and, and there's a reason for this. In the 17th century no one uh, really knew what the pancreas was there for and most anatomists thought it was situated at the back of the abdomen, a bit like a cushion for all the other stuff inside if you will. The rest of the organs in the body they thought had a nice little bed to lie on and the pancreas, therefore, really didn't do very much. Anatomists needn't bother with it. How can I draw an analogy here for some young Baroque anatomist looking for a project to do? I mean, after all, if you're going to buy a house, you don't generally take time out to dissect the patio furniture. At the time, think of the pancreas and the body as patio furniture then. Now, even today, no one really thinks much about the pancreas, I guess, unless you're a diabetic. The beta cells that produce insulin from the pancreas are contained in the evocatively entitled Islets of Langerhans, named after Paul Langerhans, the pathologist who discovered them whilst he was still a medical student in Berlin. The pancreas sits out the back, well, hides really, behind all the other abdominal organs, and it's covered by a layer of tissue that compartmentalises it. It's rarely injured, rarely seen, and so we get then to Johann Georg Wiersung, who was the first person to dissect it and to describe a great lake-like duct that ran down its centre, and for which Wiersung had written that he had no idea of its significance. I cut it, he said, and it didn't contain blood. But that little obscure structure for which Wiersung had no particular use was actually the thing that got him killed. OK, Wiersung was a genius, and it didn't pay really to be a prodigy in 17th century Vienna. A Bavarian born in Augsburg in 1600, he studied anatomy in Paris and then in Altdorf, but finally moved to Padua, where the action certainly was as far as anatomy and discovery of the human body was concerned. I'll have occasion to talk about Padua and the setup there as well as some of its luminaries in other podcasts. Anyway, by November 1629, Wiersung was established as the little darling of their professor in Padua, one Johann Wessling, 
working for Vessling as a prosector, that is someone who dissects and prepares specimens for display, Viersung held no professorial position in the 14 years that he worked in Padua. Now I'll come back to Viersling, for he is not blameless in this story. Working as a prosector whose task it was to prepare cadaver specimens, Viersung discovers this important duct, precisely noted on March the 23rd, 1642. And it's not in the university of his boss, Vessling, but rather in a private setup that Viersung had organised to dissect dead bodies in the San Francesco Hospital. He does so on the body of an executed criminal, 30-year-old Zwan Viario della Badia, who'd been hanged on the 1st of March in the Piazza del Vin for the crime of murder. OK, so for a start, there's three weeks between della Badia's hanging and the report. Now, the subject of the executed also suffering the ignominy of dissection is a whole other thing, but let's say that the judges at the time, pretty much throughout Europe, had the discretion to add a sentence of dissection on top of execution for a capital crime. That's worth another podcast, certainly. And in England's bloody code, as it was called, the number of crimes for which the death sentence could be imposed actually increased at the time by about 500%. That didn't mean, of course, that bodies were handed over swiftly after execution, and the techniques of execution left a little to be desired. Beheadings weren't always straightforward, and neither were hangings. Executioners often had to have a few goes at these things, and by the time that the body was handed over to the surgeon, it was often decomposing. One of the Dutch anatomists, Louis de Bills, in all seriousness, had petitioned King Willem of Orange, who later became William III of England, to gas convicted prisoners in sulphur gas rather than to hang them, so that his dissections might have less organ damage. Nice one, Louis. As many of these executions were public events, gassing too lacked that little bit of a spectacle, so it was never taken on. Now, part of the problem was that Viersung made the discovery, assisted by two of his students, the Dane, Thomas Bartlen, and Moritz Hoffmann of Germany. After describing the duct, Viersung sent an image he made from an engraved copper plate to his old Parisian mentor, the surgeon Jean Riolin. You can see this copper plate at the Palazzo Bon in uh, Padua. Actually, Viersung sent out seven copies of his findings, another to his old Altdorf teacher, Kasper Hoffmann, one to Carlo Abanzi, a friend, one to Professor Severino in Naples, another to the physician botanist Paul Mascar Schlegel in Hamburg, and one via a friend, Johann Theodor Schenk, passed on to a Werner Rolfnick, also a botanist doctor in Jena, and a further one to the physician Johann George Volkammer in Nuremberg. There was a final one that he sent to Ole Vorm, a professor in Copenhagen, who happened to be Bartholin's brother-in-law. So this was the way of communicating, one way at any rate, of communicating one's new novel anatomical findings. But one of the mistakes Viersung clearly made was not to publish his discovery, but rather, and I think one can get an impression of the man, he sought some sort of trusting approval from his mentors and those around him. Instead, he makes a copper plate of his findings, 
Now, that's not a normal move, and it would have given any potential enemies, even ones he might have known nothing about, some time to act, and a little wiggle room to try and change history. Yes, it was Professor Plum in the library with a candlestick. So, who knew that someone might steal his idea? By the way, pretty well every one of these copies has been traced. The one in Nuremberg, for example, was in the possession of the great anthropologist, Johann von Blumenbach, about whom I'll have occasion to speak in another podcast on how anatomy was used to pervert a narrative not only on racial differences, but on racial superiority. Anyway, after this letter had been sent, it takes Aurelian some seven years to answer. It wasn't exactly UPS or FedEx back then. And Aurelian only answers after a second nauseatingly obsequious letter comes from Viersung, begging Aurelian's patience that Viersung hasn't bothered the great man for making such an important discovery. Now, in fairness to Aurelian, he'd just been appointed as the physician in ordinary to Marie de Medici, the Queen of France. Cardinal Richelieu had exiled her, and Rélin, still with her, had been away from Paris for 11 years. He only came back to Paris after the Queen died on July the 3rd, 1642, some four months after Viersung made his discovery. So let's be fair, there was a little bit of upheaval in Jean Rélin's life at the time. Hoffman that is, Casper, and no relation to Viersung's student, Moritz Hoffmann, Hoffmann never answers Viersung. And that's important stuff. Finding a duct in the pancreas makes it a secreting gland, opening a new door in the explanation of how organs function, what we call now exocrine glands, that secrete materials of function where they're needed. It was equivalent to the discovery of the duct leading away from the salivary gland at the side of the face, the parotid gland, as it's called, discovered by the young Dane Nicholas Steno, whose ideas were stolen by his boss, Gerard Blaise. As an aside, Steno had the strength of character to invite Blaise to demonstrate where it was on a cadaver in a public forum. And, of course, Blaise, not knowing where Steno's duct uh, was, left the room humiliated. At this time, you had to imagine that discoveries in anatomy and their presentation were like a show-and-tell time, but on steroids. Steno, a deeply religious man who was so appalled by Blaise's performance, or perhaps lack thereof, uh, forced him to leave for Rome, and he was persuaded by the Pope, Pope Innocent XI, to convert to Catholicism. Anyway, Steno became the Bishop of Titiopolis, which is just outside Rome, and he's canonised as a saint. Steno is actually the only anatomist to have been beatified, by the way. Viersung went on to find the pancreatic duct 
in monkeys, cats, pigs, hens, mice and frogs, just about anything. He was serious about it. The Dutch researcher Renier de Graaf, who first discovered the follicles and the ovary, the Graafian follicles, found Viersung's duct in a dog. And soon enough, the professor of Amsterdam, Johannes van Horn, was calling the duct the Ductus Viersungianus by 1685. Relan, in fairness, begins to call it Viersung's duct in his lecture series in Paris. And news travelled faster than uh, letters, apparently. The physiology of the duct and its secretion with fatty food was not investigated until the great Claude Bernard took a look at it in the 1860s. Now, what happens next to Viersung, we simply don't know. Viersung is shot and killed at night outside the front of his house, whilst conversing with his neighbours in the centre of Padua on the 22nd of August 1643. It was near the Collegio Pratense house he was renting from a Vittoria Carrera right near the Basilica of St Anthony. If you've been around that area, it's a very large piazza, fairly open air. If you go there, it's dominated by Donatello's great equestrian statue, which is called the Gutta Malata, but otherwise there's nothing really to mark the spot of Viersung's murder. As far as we know... Viersung was assassinated by a Flemish man, Jacques or Giacomo Cambier, about whom we know nothing, except that he was one of the German nation students and used what is called an arquebus for the killing. Padua was such a famous school that the overseas students actually banded together in nations. When Vesalius was there, so was the English cleric John Caius, and with Vesalius was Gemma Frisius, who was friends with Gerardus Mercator, who first turned the flat map of the Earth into a globe. So it's a pretty famous place. As for the arquebus, it's a long gun, but it has a strong recoil, and it's shot from the chest or the shoulder. It's ignited by a matchlock that connects to a smouldering wick. It is what is called a hackbutt, but if you've ever been to a presentation on how it works as a gun of surprise, it seems pretty unlikely. The only possible theory is that someone was jealous of Viersung and sent an old-fashioned hitman to rub him out. Now, such legend with the flimsiest of evidence, but the most probable sense for such a senseless killing has been reinforced by the writings of the great Dutch physicians de Graaf himself, Theodore Kirkering and Hermann Berhave, the latter one of the greatest physicians of the 18th century, who is Professor of Medicine in Leiden, was the man who devised the technique of examining patients that every medical student and young doctor follows in order today. We've met Berhave before. Uh, Berhave was certainly wrong in his writings, reporting that Viersung had been stabbed to death. Almost a century after Viersung's death, the Professor of Anatomy Giovanni Battista Morgani added to the legend announcing the assassin as Dr. Jacobus Cambia from the German nations. Morgani having sought out, actually, the records of the German nations and writing that Viersung had been struck by a bullet from a heavy sclopetum, as it's called, a, a, a carabine or a carbine. Viersung, when dying, apparently repeating the words, I'm dying, Cambia, Cambia. 
It's a little dramatic for those old enough to remember the show Perry Mason. So the victim cries out the name of his assassin as his last dying words. And if it's to be believed, Cambier, a Dalmatian, fled Padua that night with his relative and accomplice, McCase. Some stories offer up another Dalmatian count with whom Viersong fought a legitimate duel. Is that a red herring? I don't know. Was Giacomo Cambier really a student of the German nation of artists, as the foreign students were called back then, and soon to be forced out from residence by Viersung himself in Viersung's university capacity? And then there was Vessling, who we mentioned before, but who was formally accused of the murder, but then rapidly acquitted. Vessling was very highly regarded. He travelled to Egypt, He'd written extensively on anatomy, producing a comprehensive textbook, The Syntagma, which was widely used in Europe for the next hundred years. Vesling probably was the first to describe the confluence of the arteries at the base of the brain, some 30 years before it was announced by the Oxford anatomist Thomas Willis as what became known as, as the Circle of Willis. Well, Vessling was accused of the murder by August of 1643, but he was very soon acquitted. The charge was simply considered ridiculous. Now, there are seven letters that Viersung sent, and so therefore at least seven suspects. He'd had frequent arguments with Vessling, and free of the inquiry about which we know nothing, his student Moritz Hoffmann claimed five years after Viersung's death to have discovered the duct in a turkey rooster during a dissection at the Liceo de Veneziani, much earlier than Versung, in September of 1641, claiming also that Versung had stolen his idea. On the face of it, it seems unlikely that Hoffman would have assisted in finding a duck, though, that he'd already found at the tender age of 19 a year before. Moritz insisted that he had shown the duck to Versung, and the story was relayed by the son of a Swiss physician, Johann Jakob Wepfer, who at the time was living at Viersung's house. Of course, it's not quite that simple. Wepfer apparently told the story by two other intermediaries, Julianus Gartius of Hamburg and Christian Berger of Dresden. The plot thickens. And this whole thing is getting far too complicated. Hoffman, of course, goes on to an illustrious career in Altdorf as their professor. And as for Bartlin, who becomes a professor of anatomy in Leiden, Bartlin enters into a serious and vitriolic fight with a young Swede, Alaus Rudbeck, over who'd discovered the lymph drainage channel of the body of the thoracic duct. But that's another story. Well, of Wiersung's murder, we'll never know the full story. As one of only a few writers on the subject, the Los Angeles surgeon at Cedars-Sinai, Leo Morgenstern, wrote in 1965, quote, modern histories of medicine are content to record the fact in a single tantalising sentence as if it were commonplace for great discoverers to come to such an inglorious end, unquote. To give a little temporal context here, Viersung is killed in the same year as the city of Montreal is founded, the year Abel Tasman sails past Tasmania and New Zealand. It's the same year the English Civil War erupts. It's that year in which Galileo and old Cardinal Richelieu die. Funeral services, anyway, took place 
at Viersung's home on the 23rd of August, 1643, and he's buried in the cloister of the chapter house in St Anthony's Basilica in Padua. That's the one outside of which stands that Gattamelata, sculpted by Donatello. There's still a stone inside the basilica that bears Viersung's name, with the Latin epithet reporting his accomplishments as a doctor and philosopher of skill, and there too it mentions in a single line about his cruel death. But when you venture further inside the basilica, your search sadly ends, since the actual gravestone marking the precise burial site has long been lost. It reads in Latin, I won't go through the Latin, but in translation, Johanni Jorgis Virsung of Munich, a Bavarian philosopher and medical doctor skilled in anatomy while watching over the public health, died before the day of August the 22nd, 1643, aged 43. So old, or rather young, Virsung dies, still not sure what the pancreas does, if anything, or if it's more than a piece of abdominal padding. The word itself is Greek, pan meaning all, and creus meaning flesh. A little nondescript, actually. It wasn't until Graf actually inserted a catheter into the pancreatic duct, the quill of a wild duck, actually, that some pancreatic juice was first collected. If you can believe it, we used this idea as late as 2016 in Madagascar in a missionary uh, surgical team to drip some drainage fluid of a patient after a splenectomy onto a small piece of meat to see if it became digested, since we had no test for the enzyme amylase. Can you believe that story? But it's true. The story of insulin and the pancreas is certainly worth another podcast in this series of The Anatomy Cupboard. Paul Langerhans, who I mentioned before, briefly had studied under Rudolf Virchow and presented his dissertation in 1869 on the microscopy and anatomy of the region. It was called Contributions to Microscopic Anatomy of the Pancreas, in which he rhapsodizes about a rather unique little cell cluster without clear nuclei, and it's ultimately linked as a deficiency of what was known as the islets of Langerhans after a French histologist Gustave Edouard Leguess referred to it as such in 1893, those cells were missing in patients who had diabetes. Von Mering and Minkowski had actually produced diabetes in a dog after removing its pancreas, however, some four years before. Anyway, the British physiologist Edouard Albert Sharpie Schaefer, in honour of these islets, suggested that the hormone that they might produce before it was ever proven, should be called after the islands themselves, and that's how he named the putative substance insulin. When Frederick Grant Banting tied off Viersung's duct in ten dogs, he was able, with a couple of medical students, Charles Best and Clark Noble, to retrieve some concentrated islets that hadn't been digested by the pancreatic enzymes by the time they got to it. Since there was only in Banting's uh, lab sufficient funds for one research fellow and not for two, Noble and Best tossed a coin to see who'd work with Banting. And Best won. Forever insulin, its identification and isolation, will always be linked to Banting and Best. 
I don't know how Nobel felt after that. Of course, Banting went on to win the Nobel Prize for the work uh, in 1923, and he gave half of his prize money to Best. Best became famous and wealthy on the toss of a coin. Well, we strayed off a bit, but that's not always a bad thing. I'd like to uh, credit Piotr Cheranovich from Krakow in Poland for some of these citations that I've made in this, uh, in this talk. At any rate, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.